Reframing Depression Beyond Serotonin and a Broken Brain The prescription of antidepressants such as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors have grown exponentially since their launch in the 1990s. Today, one in seven Australian adults take an antidepressant. Medicine and culture's current default mode is that a person who is distressed or sad has a chemical imbalance in their brain and this can be managed with medication. But do depressed individuals really have a chemical imbalance? Do antidepressants work above and beyond a placebo? Could any chemical imbalance even be a deliberate move by the body to help deal with the distress? What does blunting that with a medication mean for the long term? Also, if depression is a chemical imbalance restricted to the brain, what explains the myriad of physical comorbidities that frequently occur with depression such as metabolic and cardiovascular disease? With claims of a mental health crisis and an epidemic of depression, perhaps it's time to reframe depression and explore the new science that goes beyond a chemical imbalance to uncover other treatment options. To help reframe depression and understand new models and treatment methods, we're going to look at radically honest sugar pills, lessons from man flu, ice hockey legend Wayne Gretzky, Justin Bieber, and the amputation of an imaginary limb. Let's sift through the information. Welcome, I'm Nathan Rose and this is The Sift Podcast, a show where we sift through the sea of information in areas such as health, nutrition, medicine and psychology in an attempt to get a better sense of what it all means. Using science and stories, I aim to synthesise the information so you're up to date and informed on topics that matter to your health and wellbeing. We'll learn from lessons from the past, but also be excited about innovation and therapies on the horizon. In the 1950s, medicine to that point had a rather poor track record in treating patients suffering from depression, and the track record was an extremely long one. In ancient times, mental illness was attributed to supernatural forces from vexed gods and often some sort of sacrifice was the remedy. Around 400 BC, Hippocrates proposed his progressive model of humoral medicine, which posited that an imbalance of internal bodily humours drove illness. I discussed in the episode on toxins how Abraham Lincoln suffered from melancholy, which was due to the excess of the dreaded black bile humour. As we heard, Paul Lincoln unknowingly poisoned himself with mercury pills in an attempt to rid himself of the blues. Humoral medicine had a good run. It was a dominant thought for the best part of 2,000 years. Slowly, however, accumulating scientific discoveries replaced humoral medicine, at least in terms of physical diseases. However, when it came to mental illness, by the early 20th century, Sigmund Freud's psychoanalysis had profound impact on the field and became the dominant treatment paradigm. Freud had convinced the profession that early childhood experiences were the root genesis of mental distress, and Freud was a little bit too obsessed about putative sexual tension between the child and their opposite sex parent. Considering psychoanalysis's awkwardness, you can see why the idea of applying an electrical source to the head, most often unanesthetized, with the voltage and current that is equivalent to tapping into a household wall socket, sounded more appealing. In the 1940s and 50s, electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, was a common treatment for patients suffering from schizophrenia and depression. Unsurprisingly, the treatment often included side effects such as memory loss, confusion and facial fractures. Essentially, for more than 2,000 years, the bar for treating mental illness wasn't set terribly high. In 1958, an 83-year-old woman with a case of long-standing and recurrent depression opted for a new treatment. For the past eight years, she had accumulated 170 ECT sessions. The ECT gave benefits, but only for six weeks at a time. The patient enrolled in a trial of a new oral tablet. She received a compound that only required 25 milligrams a day of a dose. With this simple intervention, she did not relapse over a five-month period of taking the medicine. 
Another middle-aged woman who had previously experienced unbearable side effects from ECT also joined the trial. She'd been unwell for the past 10 years, suffering marked depression and anxiety. The patient specifically suffered severe agoraphobia, a fear of unsafe or unfamiliar environments. For the past two years, the patient was unable to leave her home, and even the thought of it triggered tachycardia, excessive heart rate, and Raynaud's phenomenon, which is a reduced blood flow to the hands and feet causing numbness and tingling. In fact, her symptoms were so severe that her doctors were considering another common treatment of the time, one that makes ECT sound somewhat benign, lobotomy. Within four days of taking the new oral medication, the patient had improved dramatically. After 10 days of the therapy, she was able to go out alone without fear and travel on buses and trains and the Raynards disappeared. But once the patient stopped the medication, all her symptoms returned rapidly. Fortunately, upon recommencement of the medication, the symptoms again quickly resolved. Similar to other medicines previously mentioned on this podcast, like Viagra, the discovery of this drug's antidepressant effects were serendipitous. Doctors noticed that some patients treated with a newly developed drug for tuberculosis, ipronazid, demonstrated a remarkably chipper mood. Of course you'd be pleased if your tuberculosis had cleared, but it was more than that. Some patients were reported to be dancing with joy in the hallways of the hospital. Animal studies performed in the 1950s on ipronazid found that it was a monoamine oxidase inhibitor which prevented the oxidative dissemination of biogenic amines. Now in English, this means it prevented the breakdown of the common neurotransmitters such as serotonin, dopamine and adrenaline. The basic theory was that ipronazid prevented the breakdown of neurotransmitters, therefore there were more neurotransmitters in the nervous system and this must provide mood enhancing effects. With a serendipitous breakthrough and a plausible mechanistic narrative, a compelling story was born, the monoamine theory of depression. No more evil spirits, no more insidious black bile, and we can stop discussing if you have hang-ups about subconsciously wanting to shag your father. Depression is caused by a neurotransmitter imbalance. No more electrocuting or slicing up the brain, just take an oral daily pill and your brain chemistry will be rebalanced and your mood will be happy and carefree. There's something about serotonin. The next iteration of the story came in the late 1960s when post-mortem studies on depressive suicide patients showed low concentrations of serotonin in brain tissue. The monoamine oxidase inhibitor drugs whilst showing some efficacy, were considered a rather blunt tool. They were indiscriminate in prolonging the shelf life, so to speak, of all the neurotransmitters. Perhaps diminishing the breakdown of some neurotransmitters, such as adrenaline, is not conducive to improving mood. With hints that a serotonin deficiency in the brain is the chief chemical imbalance, drug manufacturers turned their attention to developing more precise medications. During this formative period, the chemical imbalance theory also became more granular. It was suggested that depression was due to a deficiency of serotonin not in the nerve cells, or neurons, but in the space between the neurons, called the synaptic cleft. Essentially, there wasn't enough serotonin loitering in the microscopic space between the two communicating neurons. If the serotonin in the synaptic cleft could be replenished, then healthy neuronal communication could be restored, and voila, happiness returns. Eli Lilly began developing compounds that stopped serotonin from being drained out of the synapse and back into the neuron. They targeted the serotonin transporter system, and in 1974, Eli Lilly announced they developed a drug to plug up the hole of this transporter. They dubbed this new class of drug Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, or SSRIs. Eli Lilly got FDA approval for the compound fluoxetine in 1987, and in early 1988, America was introduced to the trade name of the drug, Prozac. By the early 1990s, nearly every adult in the developed world had heard about the new wonder drug called Prozac, and soon after, a handful of spin-offs from other drug companies followed. By the mid-1990s, the chemical imbalance theory, 
In particular, a serotonin deficiency became the unquestioned cause of depression. The science appeared settled. Prozac Nation Whilst SSRIs were physically plugging in the hole of a serotonin transporter, this class of drugs had seemingly become filling a large and lucrative hole in patient care. For example, currently, Australia has the second highest per capita usage of antidepressants of all 38 OECD countries, marginally behind Iceland. Around 1 in the 7 Australians take an antidepressant daily. Unsurprisingly, the prescription rate of antidepressants has doubled over the past 10 years. Data also suggests that the narrative of the chemical imbalance theory has equally taken a foothold in the minds of patients. Numerous surveys around the world show that over 80% of patients taking an antidepressant believe it is established that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance. Similarly, a large number of general practitioners and 84% of psychology students believe that a chemical imbalance is a main cause of depression. This is a good sign, right? We have a theory, we have a treatment based on a theory, and the majority of healthcare practitioners and patients believe in the narrative. What's the problem in that? Well, we'll soon explore if the theory is supported by data. Before that, let's look at the consequences of patients buying into this model. Even if the theory is incorrect, what's the harm of believing this narrative? Researchers found that the belief in the chemical imbalance of depression is linked to the view that the brain is diseased with an organic defect and is often thought of as a rather fixed or stubborn state. This creates the perception of a more recalcitrant condition and the patient loses agency, resulting in poorer outcomes. For example, depressed patients who held the view of a chemical imbalance had more severe depression symptoms and lower treatment expectations. Patients subscribing to the chemical imbalance also had reduced sense of control and motivation. These findings are in contrast to other studies showing that interventions that educate patients on the malleability of their neurochemistry and depression reduces the pessimism about their condition and the feeling of hopelessness. Searching for the serotonin smoking gun Despite the deeply entrenched view in society that there is a chemical imbalance, particularly a serotonin deficiency, for decades data has steadily accumulated finding no such serotonin deficiency in depression. One long-term advocate of challenging the serotonin theory is Joanna Moncrief, Professor of Critical and Social Psychiatry at University College London. In 2022, Joanna and her team published a comprehensive meta-analysis on previous meta-analysis and the most recent trials on measuring serotonin in depressed patients. Before we discuss the results, it's worth pointing out that it's not so easy to measure the amount of serotonin in a patient's synaptic cleft. The skull doesn't contain a dipstick, like a car engine, where you can just quickly check the oil level. Plus, the neurotransmitter is short-lived. It's really hard to catch it in action. So when it comes to measuring brain levels of serotonin, researchers have to rely on distant markers, metabolites, receptors, and use depletion studies, just to name a few. When looking at all these markers of serotonin, Moncrief found little to no evidence supporting the serotonin theory. In summary, her team found no confident or significant associations of depression with serotonin or its more stable metabolite, known as 5-HIAA. They also found no association with depression with tryptophan depletion studies. Now, tryptophan is the dietary precursor to serotonin. If you deplete a person's diet of tryptophan, you should expect them to become depressed as they can't make serotonin. They also found no association with depression with the serotonin receptor, which is called 5-HT1A. They also found no association with depression and the activity of the serotonin transporter. They also found no association with depression and the type of serotonin transporter, either the long form or the short form, which is linked to a more or less efficient way of getting serotonin into the cells. And finally, they found no association with depression and interaction of the serotonin transporter and stress, such as early life stress. Essentially, no matter which way Moncrief sliced or diced the research, there wasn't a strong signal that there is a dysfunctional or underactive serotonin system occurring in depression. There was no serotonin smoking gun. Now, your next thought might be, if a depressed patient doesn't have a serotonin dysfunction, why are the SSR medications so commonly prescribed? 
Does it mean they don't have an antidepressant effect? Well, these are good questions, and by now you might not be surprised to hear the answer is that it's complicated. To answer one component of these questions, we first need to perform some radical honesty. What you're talking about, Harvard? The pain is worse than labour. This is how Linda Bonanno described her crippling irritable bowel symptoms that have robbed her life for the past 15 years. Linda regularly experienced intense cramps, bloating, diarrhoea and excruciating pain. So when Harvard Medical School advertised for volunteers to partake in a trial of IBS using a new therapy, Linda enthusiastically signed up with a sense of hope. However, her hopes quickly turned to jaw-dropping disappointment when she was informed about the nature of the therapy. Linda thought this would never work. Nevertheless, Linda had nothing to lose and decided to enrol anyway. Within four days of taking the medication, Linda was floored, not with pain, but with delighted surprise. Her symptoms all but vanished. She had her life back and went out dancing with her friends. The reason Linda was so shocked with the efficacy was that Linda was prescribed a placebo. Not just a placebo, but what's called an honest placebo. Linda was told on enrolment that the treatment for her long-standing IBS would be inert sugar pills. Linda enrolled in a trial on the emerging therapy of open-label placebos, and the evidence to date, to the bewilderment of many, is that honestly and transparently providing patients with a placebo has a noticeable therapeutic effect. There have been positive open-label clinical trials for IBS, chronic back pain, menopausal hot flushes, migraines, allergic rhinitis, cafemadrol, cancer-related fatigue, and yep, you guessed it, depression. To date, there have been two small trials using open-label placebos versus a wait list, and both have found meaningful reductions in depression with the use of Honest sugar pills. There is intense speculation on how Honest placebos work, and clever trials and brain imaging studies have and are being conducted to tease this out. Currently, the view on how they may be offering benefits relates back to my previous episode on blood sugar regulation on the discussion of the expectation effect and predictive processing. Briefly, the brain generates expectations based on our prior experiences, and even the theatre or ritual of medicine with the white coats and stethoscope and the strong practitioner-patient relationship can set the mental model of a positive intent. Most of this is subconscious. With these expectations, to reduce the prediction error, the brain and body aims to meet expectations and facilitates its own healing. If we were to focus on which neurotransmitters mediate this, it appears not to be serotonin, but likely dopamine and endogenous opioids. We'll come back to the expectations and mental models soon, but first, let's look at the old-fashioned placebo response in depression. Deceptive placebos. There are volumes of information discussing if and how effective SSRIs are for the treatment of depression compared to traditional placebos. However, it's not that the clinical trials have shown that they don't work, and it's more that the original mass placebos work incredibly well for depression, making it difficult to tease out a signal of benefit from SSRIs. The concept is made even murkier by the suggestion that drug companies have failed to publish any trials of their SSRIs that didn't produce a positive result, a concept known as the file drawer effect. I'll just quietly tuck this into the file drawer and forget that it ever happened. Since 1998, hundreds of meta-analysis, not clinical trials, but reviews of analysis of the thousands of clinical trials have been published exploring if antidepressants are better than a placebo, and if so, by how much. As these reviews have stacked up, and as researchers have progressively been granted more and more access to data under the Freedom of Information Act, the results have been surprisingly consistent. These studies continue to suggest that a staggering 80% of the efficacy of antidepressants are due to the placebo effect. Likewise, another metric consistently found is the value of what's known as the standardized mean difference, or also known as the Cohen's D, or just the D-score. This is a statistical measure that is used to quantify the effect size of the difference between two groups in a study. Roughly speaking, a D-value of 0.2 is a small benefit. 0.5 indicates a medium benefit, and 0.8 or above is a large benefit. 
The National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, NICE, in the UK, at one point during this long debate, suggested that antidepressants need to have a D value of at least 0.5 compared to a placebo to have any meaningful clinical advantages. With this somewhat arbitrary benchmark, the consistent finding from the meta-analysis show that the D value for antidepressants hover around the 0.3 mark. That is, antidepressants are slightly better than a placebo, but the additional benefit is thought by some to be clinically meaningless. It's worth finally pointing out that the largest effect size for antidepressants appear to be those with the most severe cases of depression. But these effect sizes are still not overwhelmingly that large. Kind of best of a bad lot. But for someone with severe depression, perhaps every little bit of benefit could be welcome. Kicking the can down the road. James Moore, a civil service worker for South Wales in the UK, in 2011 began feeling the pressures of life. Work stress was accumulating and the challenges of recent fatherhood were affecting him. James visited his GP and subsequently a psychiatrist who prescribed an antidepressant to combat the diagnosis of anxiety and depression. The psychiatrist informed James that he had a chemical imbalance, which the antidepressant would correct, but it would likely be that James would remain on the antidepressant for life. After a few years of the medication, James no longer felt comfortable on it and wanted to stop. His GP recommended a tapering strategy, but every time James tried to lower the dose, he experienced significant withdrawal effects such as insomnia, nausea, panic attacks and irritability. Eventually, after two and a half years of very gradual reductions, James managed to wean off the antidepressants. His journey sparked a passion in broadcasting the challenges around withdrawal and has become an advocate and a well-known public figure in educating and discussing this topic. Despite antidepressants possibly not having a large clinical effect size outside of a placebo response, as you can see with James's experience, this doesn't mean antidepressants don't have any biological activity. Interestingly, Whilst the benefits of antidepressants may be largely placebo, the symptoms from withdrawal have been demonstrated to not be placebo's evil twin, the nocebo. Essentially, withdrawal symptoms are not psychological or psychosomatic, they appear to be a biological phenomena. In addition to withdrawal symptoms which often manifest within days of tapering or discontinuation, patients discontinuing antidepressants are also more likely to experience a return of the depression within the next six months. This is known as a relapse. Patients who start and stop antidepressants are three times more likely to have a relapse of depression compared to patients who never go on medication to address their depression. Some researchers argue that antidepressants are robbing Peter to pay Paul or to overdo cliches kicking the can down the road. Whilst antidepressants may reduce symptoms, they can be seen as hitting the pause button on the affliction and its normal course will resume once the medication is stopped. Pausing the illness obviously can help short-term, but it also may make the problem more and more difficult to overcome in the future. Counterintuitively, there is emerging evidence that rather than pausing or blunting the illness with medication, another approach is essentially to lean into depression to achieve a resolution which may hold better. We'll look at methods on how shortly, but to understand this process, it requires a completely different look at serotonin than you may have heard of before. Crossing the serotonin threshold. Newton's third law of motion states that for every action or force in nature, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Essentially, what goes up must come down. Throw a ball high in the sky and thanks to gravity, it will land back down. Whilst Newton's third law is an important law in physics, it can be seen as a useful metaphor for a radical theory on how antidepressants act on the body. Dr. Paul Andrews is an Associate Professor of Evolutionary Psychology at McMaster University in Ontario. For decades, Andrews has been exploring the evolution of the serotonin system and the effects of antidepressants on mental and physical health. His research has shown that antidepressants pause depression by lowering serotonin due to antidepressants' Newtonian counterbalancing properties. Now let me explain. Firstly, Andrews has convincing data that instead of a serotonin deficiency in depression, there is an excess. For example, a study measuring the serotonin metabolite 5-HIAA in the jugular vein 
which is essentially the drain pipe from what's coming out of the brain, found much higher levels of this metabolite in unmedicated depressed patients than healthy controls. Okay, so if this is the case, so wouldn't administering SSRIs further increase serotonin in depressed patients and therefore make them even worse? Well, this is where Newton's law comes in. In animal studies, when rats were given SSRIs, initially their brain serotonin levels increase. But those darn homeostatic mechanisms that we spoke about in the last episode kick in and lower serotonin levels back down. After four weeks of antidepressant use, the rat's brain serotonin levels are back at baseline. Andrews argues that SSRIs help raise an already high serotonin to go beyond a threshold and trigger counterbalance mechanisms and drive the serotonin system into underactivity, and this mediates a pause in the depression. This model better explains why antidepressants often take several weeks to demonstrate a clinical benefit. SSRIs rapidly increase serotonin within hours and days of use, so if boosting serotonin improves mood, why doesn't the patient feel improvements rapidly? Andrew's theory better explains this timing of the SSRI's benefits. Good reasons for bad feelings. A young man presented to a psychiatry clinic in the US for the treatment of his severe depression. He'd lost interest in almost everything and was suffering from insomnia and weight loss and presented disheveled, somber, slouching, slow and softly spoken. Patients said he was a failure and his future looked hopeless. The psychiatrist prescribed an antidepressant. A month later, there was no change in the patient's disposition and the psychiatrist, at a loss, referred him to a fellow therapist at the clinic, Dr. Randolph Nessie. The patient told Dr. Nessie that he was about to be expelled from school due to his poor performance and his girlfriend threatened to break up with him if he was expelled. Dr. Nessie inquired about the girlfriend and the patient described how she was beautiful and intelligent and soon would graduate and move away to a prestigious college. Upon inquiry, the patient thought that having a distant relationship with his ambitious girlfriend would be difficult, but he loved her and was committed. The patient also reflected that he seldom felt like he fitted in with his girlfriend and her crowd. Nessie asked the patient if he had previously dated other women, or if he was thinking about dating other women in the future. He said definitely not. The patient left the consultation and a few weeks later discontinued his antidepressants. Several months had passed before Dr. Nessie saw the patient again. Upon presentation, Dr. Nessie was shocked. The patient was well-groomed, energetic and upright. He told Dr. Nessie that he no longer needed the treatment. Reviewing the patient's symptoms, Dr. Nessie concurred. The patient had recovered. Inquiring about his personal life, the patient shared how he quit school and took up work with his dad. The patient eagerly described how his relationship with his girlfriend is great and they are having lots of fun. Dr. Nessie questioned the patient about how they were managing the long distance. The patient paused, searched his thoughts, and said, Oh, you mean that girlfriend? She was too uppity. My new girlfriend likes to do all the same things I do. She's great. That was a case vignette from Dr. Nessie's book, Good Reasons for Bad Feelings. Dr. Nessie practices evolutionary psychiatry, and like Dr. Paul Andrews, who is an evolutionary psychologist, they often look at mental health from a different view to most. Evolutionary psychologists and biologists often think of symptoms not always as diseases or ailments to put a band-aid on, but as a helpful response and a protective mechanism. Whilst a cough may be annoying to you, it's trying to expel a potentially dangerous pathogen out of your system. So too is diarrhea. Fever is unpleasant, but it can help fight infections. Evolutionary psychologists argue that sometimes unpleasant feelings can be helpful to the organism. Andrew suggests that depression can be seen as an adaptation to help solve a problem rather than the condition that needs to be medicated out of, and serotonin appears to be the biochemical mediator to make you lean into your funk and solve the issue. Don't do something, sit there. Andrews has posited the rumination analytical hypothesis of depression which contends that depression is an attempt to help a person find a solution to a complex social distress. When we are faced with a threat to our status, or we experience loss, or we're not achieving our desired goals, our physiology adjusts to relocate energy and resources away from pleasure, growth, maintenance and reproduction, and instead invest energy into ruminating. This constant mulling over doesn't typically feel nice and can be all-consuming, 
but from an evolutionary psychiatry perspective, that's the point. Forget about sex, food, socialising, and put your energy into thinking of a solution to your social stress. We'll soon look at the research that shows how our physiology reroutes its resources to deliberately worry, but first let's look at why acknowledging this process can be helpful from a clinical perspective. Firstly, Andrews argues that for some it may be advantageous to not be medicated and allow rumination to help solve the problem. Granted, this will take some time, but spontaneous resolution of depression is very common and is linked to far less rates of relapse than medicated depressed patients. A matter of perspective. But taking a further step, emerging research suggests, unlike the patients who believe their depression is a stubborn chemical imbalance, which is linked to a reduced agency and treatment success, if patients are educated on the adaptive benefits of depression, they may improve their mental health more rapidly. In a recent clinical trial, volunteers with a history of depression, but who are not currently on any medication or receiving any treatment, participated in mock telehealth appointments. During the consultations, the participants were randomly assigned to watch one of two educational videos. One video explained how depression was a disease like cancer or diabetes and was driven by biopsychosocial risk factors, including a chemical imbalance. The other group were educated on how depression acts as a functional signal to alert the individual that something in their life needs more attention. Here are some of the quotes from the depression signal video. Depression is not your fault. It's a signal that it serves an important function. Another one was, in fact, every emotion has a specific job to do. Fear lets us know that we're in danger. It helps start the fight-flight-freeze response and helps us get out of life-threatening situations. Sadness serves an important function of letting us know that we've lost something very meaningful to us. And finally, depression also serves a really important function. Depression is a signal that something in our lives needs more attention. Depression is telling us that something is not working for us and our needs are not being met. So, we might need to make some changes, perhaps in our daily routines, our relationships, our work environments, and even maybe our thinking patterns. Depression is telling us that something needs more attention. The Depression is a Disease video had similar lines about depression not being your fault, but it framed that the disease is due to a faulty brain. Here's one excerpt. There are several components that increase the risk of developing depression. There's a genetic component to depression as it tends to run in families. There are certain brain chemicals that can help regulate mood and stress that seem to be abnormal in depression. Life circumstances like being bullied or traumatised can also increase the risk. Overall, the information was bookended the same for each group. Depression is not their fault, and they were both given the same description of the treatment of depression. All that differed was the framing of the depression. The participants were not given any suggestions on behaviour change. When the researchers interviewed the participants, they found functional framing of depression was associated with a stronger view that their own efforts could help overcome depression. They had reduced self-stigma and greater beliefs about the adaptive nature of depression compared to the biopsychosocial group. Among females in the signal condition, they also demonstrated a greater growth mindset of depression, the belief that depression is changeable. The results from this study support the idea of framing depression as an adaptive signal that something in the patient's life needs attention. However, this knowledge alone may not be enough to induce depression remission, and therapies that help explore the cause and how to process it more productively may be required. In Dr. Nestle's case study, we heard how he skillfully inquired about what he thought the source of the depression was in the patient, a possible unattainable goal of maintaining a healthy relationship with someone potentially not matched and living at a distance. Cognitive behaviour therapy, CBT, can be helpful for patients to process the rumination. Also, an alternative approach that helps to make rumination more insightful and less debilitating is acceptance and commitment therapy, also known as ACT. ACT is based on the idea that suffering is a natural part of life and it focuses on increasing psychological flexibility. The aim of ACT is to develop the ability to be mindful of experiences in the present moment in an accepting and non-judgmental way while behaving consistently with one's values. ACT has been tested extensively in the most recent meta-analysis of 18 studies involving 1,088 participants found that ACT significantly reduced depression as compared to a control group. The all-important effect size I mentioned earlier, the D-score, 
for ACT it was 0.59, which if you recall is a solid medium effect size. So to summarize, depression may be seen as an adaptation to attempt to solve a problem, and when it's framed up this way, and the person is open, flexible, mindful, non-judgmental, and makes a commitment to resolve the issue, then they could be more likely to recover without the need to blunt the process with medication. Now, I want to keep going deeper on this concept of adaptation and return to the role of serotonin to continue to build a broader framework which allows us to explore more novel therapeutic strategies. To do this, let's look at another crippling disease. A serious genetic disease. There is a health condition that can swiftly strike down around half the world's population and create a seemingly life or death scenario. Usually these genetically similar individuals, on average, portray themselves as resilient, courageous and strong. But at any one point in time, within a 12-hour period, they can transform to be weepy, inconsolable and in need of powerful pain relief and frankly depressed. Sadly, I possess this genetic disposition. I possess the XY chromosomes, which makes me vulnerable to the man flu. Man flu is an example of what's called sickness behavior, where the person is infected with a contagious pathogen and has argued that evolution has shaped us to go into self-administered quarantine to avoid spreading illness to related kings such as our offspring. An effective strategy to induce self-quarantine is to make the person antisociable and temporarily unappealing for others to want to be around. Along with their catastrophizing, the stereotypical man flu victim also feels depressed and wants to be alone in his man cave. This way they can keep the distance from the tribe, preventing the spread of the infection. There are many physiological similarities between sickness behavior and depression, as both require the reallocation of energy and resources away from growth, reproduction and repair, into immunity or rumination respectively. To achieve this, the body needs signals, like a police officer directing the flow of traffic at an intersection. Paul Andrews puts forward a convincing argument that rather than being a neurotransmitter, instead serotonin plays a much larger role in being a chief controller of where we spend our bodily energy. The energy regulation hypothesis puts forward the view that serotonin transmission is elevated in states to coordinate trade-offs in energy allocation. Recall how Andrews found elevated, not decreased serotonin in people with depression. The energy regulation hypothesis suggests this is adaptive as serotonin is elevated in particular brain regions during a depressive state to help funnel energy and resources into the brain to promote rumination and away from other parts of the brain linked to pleasure and reproduction. Evidence suggests that there is a surge of serotonin in the raphae nucleus during depression, a region of the brain that is a distribution hub to several other brain regions which are involved in focusing our attention on a problem. Conversely, the raphae nucleus dampens the supply of resources to other brain regions that specialize in feeling pleasure and coordinating growth and reproduction. The body has an energy budget, and during a crisis like depression, the pleasure budget is slashed and the coffers of rumination are filled to help the person think their way out of the dilemma. Once resolved, the budget can be restored to business as usual. To circle back to antidepressant administration, there is some speculation that with its paradoxical ability to lower brain levels of serotonin, in effect, antidepressants could pause the rebudgeting. Hence, the patients feel less depressed, but it has potentially come at the cost of not allowing the brain to resolve the issue. According to Nessie, sometimes this could be helpful if the patient has a live event that it perhaps is unresolvable. Maybe it's better to put the rumination head in the sand. But for other cases that are potentially resolvable, then perhaps antidepressants are counterproductive. To summarize, often people have life stresses. Our brains have evolved to help us think of solutions, and this can be via rumination and diverting just away from pleasures of life. If a patient is informed that there are good reasons for bad feelings, plus they are supported through it, then they have a good chance of resolving the issue. For better or for worse, antidepressant medication may interfere with this process, and upon discontinuation, there still may be a need for the patient's physiology to resume rumination. Now this all sounds somewhat neat and tidy for someone with a common life stressor, 
but some patients can be depressed for no obvious or discernible reason. Now let's explore when sometimes the mind and body have inaccurate perceptions which can lead to this type of depression. Removing nothing from nothing. In the early 1990s, an odd-looking advertisement in the San Diego newspaper caught the attention of a man named DS. The ad was seeking amputees for a range of clinical experiments and was worded in a way that sounded bordering on the occult. It spoke of body parts that can't be seen but can be felt by their owners. This may sound cryptic to many, but for DS it resonated with him. Nine years earlier, DS was involved in a horrific motorcycle accident and subsequently lost his left arm at the shoulder. Not only was he without a limb, but more pressing was that DS could still feel that limb. And it hurt. His absent arm felt frozen and his elbow ached constantly. This phenomenon is known as phantom limb pain and causes considerable discomfort to the sufferer. The early 1990s was a boom for medical technology as tools such as magnetic resonance imagery or MRI or positron emission tomography PET scanners or computer tomography CT scanners and 3D ultrasounds were all increasingly being refined and deployed into medicine and research. So when DS presented the San Diego Center for Brain and Cognition at the University of California, he must have been as shocked at therapeutic proposition as Linda was, who was offered a sugar pill to treat her 15-year battle with IBS. Instead of high-tech equipment, DS was put in front of a cardboard box about the size of a milk crate. This box was divided by a partition with a mirror attached to the insides. The side facing DS had two openings and the top of the box was open allowing DS to peer into the inside. Was this a joke? What was this amateur contraption? The mastermind of this low-tech eyesore was neurologist V.S. Ramachandran. He had a theory and a simple experiment to test the theory. Ramachandran asked DS to put his intact right arm into the right aperture of the box. DS was then asked to imagine inserting his left phantom lens into the left hole. The smoke and mirrors illusion, or really just the mirrors, was that Ramachandran set up the mirrors in the box at an angle that projected DS's right arm to appear that he also now had a healthy left arm. When DS peered into the box, he had two arms again. Ramachandran told DS to close his eyes and start swinging both arms back and forth. DS felt no movement in his still frozen phantom left limb. DS was instructed to open his eyes watch his arms and repeat the arm swings again. My God, DS exclaimed. He began jumping up and down with excitement. My arm is plugged in again. It's as if I'm back in the past, he said with amazement. For the first time in nine years, the frozen arm unfoiled. His cramps abated and the elbow pain disappeared. And DS took the now treasured cardboard box home and began using it regularly. When he had his left arm in the box, he was pain free but as soon as he withdrew it, the arm froze up again. However, after a few weeks of use, Dias no longer felt the pain in his elbow. That's because he no longer had an elbow. He experienced what's called telescoping. Progressively, his phantom arm retracted in like a telescope. After three weeks, all he felt was a hand attached to his shoulder. Soon after that, the hand disappeared. Dias was thrilled. He was proud that he was the first person to have a phantom limb amputated. and for his low-tech discovery and subsequent pioneering work, Ramachandran in 2011, Time magazine named him as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He was a position right next to Justin Bieber. In terror, what? Dias's phantom limb was in part due to an error of interoception, and there's emerging evidence that aberrant interoception is not only occurring in depression, but therapies aimed to correct interoception can improve mood, just like Ramachandran helped correct Dias's interoception. What's interoception, you ask? Is it a Christopher Nolan movie? Interoception is the sense of the body's internal state, including sensations related to physiological processes such as heart rate, breathing, hunger, pain, and emotional states. It's the way our brains perceive, interpret, integrate, and regulate the signals from within, allowing us to be more aware of and responding to our internal sensations. Interoception is crucial for maintaining homeostasis as it helps us regulate our body functions and adapt to various emotional and physiological changes. 
In the previous episode on blood sugar control, I discussed the spooky research where diabetics were unknowingly exposed to inaccurate clocks, and this affected how they regulated their blood glucose. In this scenario, the researchers were messing with their exteroception, how someone reads signals from the outside world, such as sight, sound, touch, etc. Interoception is the complement to exteroception. Interoception is how we read signals from our inner world. Our emotions, such as sadness, are constructed from a combination of our extraceptive and interceptive senses. This has been dubbed the theory of constructed emotions. Currently, the most reliable way to measure interoception is to assess how accurately a person can count their heartbeat without feeling their pulse, whilst researchers actually measure their heartbeat. Known as interoceptive accuracy, this score represents how closely a person's reported perceptions match the actual physiological signal. Several studies have been conducted measuring interoceptive accuracy in depression, with the combined results reviewed in a 2019 meta-analysis. This paper showed that depressed individuals have significantly reduced interoceptive accuracy compared to healthy controls. The healthy controls typically scored over 80% accuracy, while the depressed patients scored around 60%. Just like Diaz, who had a severe inaccurate interoception of his left arm, these results suggest depressed people are also rather out of touch with how their body is feeling. The reduced interoceptive accuracy in depression is largely due to impaired activity in a particular brain region known as the insula. This area of the brain plays a central role in processing and integrating information from both interoception and extraception, acting like a chief controller. Neuroimaging studies have found alterations in both the activity and the physical size of the insula in depressed patients. On average, depressed patients have reduced insular activity, smaller insulas, and the insula is communicating to maladaptive brain regions rather than adaptive brain regions. Now, the good news is that therapies that improve interoceptive accuracy and or exercise the insula can help improve mood. For example, a single dose of antidepressant medication was recently shown to improve interoceptive accuracy in depressed patients. Maybe this is how they do provide some benefit instead of boosting serotonin levels. Mindfulness training has also been shown to improve insular activity by encoupling the insula from the default mode network, known as the DMN. Some people may already heard of the DMN, in the context of psychedelics, as the default mode network, as the name suggests, is our default mode of thinking and is linked to maladaptive rumination. Proponents of psychedelics cite evidence of its mood-enhancing effects by releasing the user from their default mode network to enable the person to gain new insights. Mindfulness training may be working similarly, as it's been shown to reduce the connectivity of the insula with the DMN and establish a stronger connectivity to specific brain regions of the prefrontal cortex, which are linked to greater self-awareness and more objective analysis of both interoceptive and extraceptive experiences. Similar effects on the insular and interoceptive accuracy have been recorded in subjects performing meditation and yoga. Again, like Ramachandran, using his mirrors to retrain Deus's brain and improve his interoceptive accuracy and perform the welcome phantom limb amputation, this research on brain retraining and depression suggests by correcting the inaccurate interoception, this can improve their mood. If your heart beats true, then you could be blue. Another aspect of the heart in relation to the insula and depression is the variability of one's heart rate. You're no doubt familiar with heart rate, say 60 beats per minute. But the total number per minute does not mean that the interval between each beat is precisely one second. One interval may be 1.1 seconds, and the next interval may be 0.9 seconds. And that's a good thing. Known as heart rate variability, or HRV, this metric has consistently proven to be a reliable marker of health. It's essentially a physiological marker that reflects the autonomic nervous system's activity, and is influenced by both the sympathetic, the fight or flight, or the parasympathetic, the rest and digest branches of the autonomic nervous system. HRV is not only an indicator of physiological health, but it's also a marker of psychological and emotional well-being. Higher or more variable HRV is generally associated with better emotional regulation, adaptability, and resilience. Conversely, there is a mountain of research on HRV and depression, and the results consistently show that these subjects have a lower HRV, that is, that they're less physiologically flexible, than healthy controls. Essentially, depressed individuals have a more metronomic heart rate, their heart beats true. 
and that's not a good sign. Recent research using MRI has found that using HRV biofeedback therapies results in improved connectivity in the insula with the prefrontal cortex. HRV biofeedback therapies have also been shown to increase HRV and mood in depressed individuals and are linked to improved insular prefrontal cortex activity. The benefits of psychotherapy and depression have also been linked to an increase in HRV. There are several nutrients and herbs that have been shown to improve mood in depressed individuals, such as omega-3 fatty acids and curcumin. These ingredients have also been shown to increase HRV. Research suggests that they may be mediating their HRV and mood benefits by improving vagal tone, which is the major component of the parasympathetic nervous system. Also, a clinical trial in 2022 found the use of a non-invasive electrical device known as a transcutaneous vagal nerve stimulator was as effective as an SSRI for the treatment of depression. Therefore, treatments that improve heart rate variability can be useful in managing depression. Exercise is another good example as it improves HRV and mood. To find out how else exercise is useful, let's revisit mental models or predictive coding. Prisoners of our own minds. So far we've covered topics such as expectation from placebos, evolutionary theories, energy budgeting, and interoception. Whilst these may all seem disparate, they all can be pulled together in a framework, again like last episode, by looking at predictive coding and allostasis. Professor Lisa Feldman Bennett, the researcher who developed the earlier mentioned theory of constructed emotion, proposes the locked-in brain hypothesis of depression, and this draws all the concepts together. Here's a brief summary. The brain's most important job is to anticipate or predict the energy needs of the body, and to meet those needs before they arise. Recall this is what's known as allostasis. Like the famous ice hockey player Wayne Gretzky who once said, I skate to where the puck is going, not to where it's been. The brain is trying to allocate energy on what it thinks is coming up next. The brain generates predictions based on information from both the outside world, exteroception, and the inside world, interoception. Allostasis, or body budgeting, is executed based off this information. In effect, your mood is a product of your brain setting a budget based off forecasts from the information received from exteroception and interoception. If the mental model built, or predicted, is of gloom, then the budgeting will be orchestrated to the body to feel gloom. This budgeting also considers the energy supplies. How much does the body have to invest? Therefore, a lack of energy can also result in poor allostatic control, and symptoms manifest such as fatigue, depression, and alterations in appetite. In this vicious cycle, these patients' brains get stuck in this pattern or locked in. The patient has poor energy regulation and inaccurate mental models due to the poor prediction and are unable to update their models. This is suggested to reinforce the locked-in brain, producing a downward spiral. Fortunately, many of the strategies already mentioned, such as mindfulness, psychotherapy, vagal nerve stimulation, etc., can help correct these prediction errors and update mental models. I want to round off this therapeutic approach by addressing the energy regulation component. The poor allostatic control in depression can in part explain many of the comorbidities seen in depression, such as insulin resistance, cardiovascular disease, and chronic fatigue. This highlights that depression can be seen as a whole body disorder, rather than just a brain disorder, and studies show that depressed patients have widespread mitochondrial dysfunction. That is, the energy factories in depressed patients' cells are inefficient and unable to produce adequate amounts of energy. For example, researchers performed muscle biopsies on 28 depressed subjects and measured the amount of energy, known as ATP, generated from these muscles. Compared to controls, they found that the ATP production and the enzymes involved in the ATP production were significantly lower in depressed individuals. Now back to the benefits of exercise for mood. Research shows that exercise, particularly aerobic, is a potent remedy for depression as aerobic activity improves mitochondrial function. However, the caveat here is that exercise appears to work best for mild and moderate cases of depression, but not severe cases. This fits in with the locked brain theory because when depression becomes so entrenched, exercise alone isn't enough to unlock the brain.
Similarly, another treatment that promotes global energy production has been shown to improve depression. Creatine, a molecule we synthesize or ingest from our diets, helps our mitochondria generate ATP. Supplemental creatine has been explored in a handful of trials in depressed patients, and overall, the results have been positive, particularly as an adjuvant to antidepressants. For example, 52 women with depression were given either SSRIs plus 3 grams a day of creatine, or SSRIs and a match placebo for 8 weeks. As early as 2 weeks in, there was a greater response in the creatine group, which continued to persist throughout the trial. By week 8, the depression scores in the creatine group fell by 80%, while the placebo group experienced a 63% reduction. Okay, to finish up, let's zoom out. We've covered a lot of areas, and many may seem disjointed. So let's summarize. The mainstream view is that depression is a disease caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain. Unfortunately, holding this view can often lead the patient feeling like the condition is difficult to recover from and reduces their hope and agency. But overwhelming evidence suggests that there is no such chemical imbalance, particularly a serotonin deficiency in depression. If anything, serotonin may be elevated, and SSRIs, by invoking the body's counter mechanisms, may lower serotonin. In any case, the elevation serotonin may be a, the body's attempt to help divert energy and resources into solving the complex social problem that's causing the depression. In a sense, your body is deliberately going into a funk so you can think your way out of it. But sometimes your body can misinterpret signals and needlessly put you into a funk. Depression can result from both interpretation of social events, but also misreading how the body's internal state is feeling. Whilst antidepressants are widely prescribed, their efficacy has long been questioned and there can be challenges with withdrawal and depression relapse. A good chunk of the benefits are possibly due to the placebo effect as our expectations or predictions of how well SSRIs work are doing the therapeutic heavy lifting. However, our predictions of depression outside of SSRI treatment can also work against us, and there's emerging evidence that depressed individuals have inaccurate predictions or mental models and are not able to adequately correct these predictions. In response, their body adjusts energy and metabolism to meet those poor predictions, and this is thought to drive the comorbidities of depression such as fatigue and cardiovascular disease. Let's conclude with a comparison to a time and place where there's a different cultural prediction or mental model of depression and arguably a better way of navigating this affliction. Prior to the influence of Western scientific medicine in Japan, the predominant healthcare system was Yojo, which is based on the concepts imported from China and focused less on control of disease and more on social health, such as morality, culture, and education. Loosely translated, the Western model of depression would be comparable to the traditional concept of Yutsusho, which is qi stagnation due to the combination of emotions, social conflict, loss, or the changing physiology of the body. The important piece here was that Yususho was not thought as an illness, but instead it was a non-pathological and even a revered way of being. A subject with Yususho was not considered sick, nor necessarily sought care for the symptoms. Instead, Japanese culture expected the affected individual to search for the social or moral meaning of their distress. Perhaps reframing depression begins with reframing how our culture views depression. Neurologist and author Dr. Suzanne O'Sullivan describes how our internal models are largely shaped by what she calls illness templates. These culturally defined templates are unknowingly assimilated by the individual and sets up the mental model of an illness. The traditional Japanese concept of Yususho possessed no illness template, but contrast to modern Western medicine, depression has a cultural template of diagnosis and pathology. This of course can have benefits, but sometimes emotions like low mood can be overly medicalized and the unconscious mental models the diagnosis creates can perhaps set up the expectation effect of a stubborn mental illness that only medication can manage. With all this in mind, rather than correcting chemical imbalance, if we create more adaptive mental models and deploy therapies aimed at facilitating adaptive rumination and problem solving, provide more accurate interoception and enhanced energy reproduction and regulation, this may lead to better prevention management and remission of depression. Therapies such as acceptance and behavior therapy, mindfulness, psychotherapy, exercise, vagal nerve stimulation, and supplementation can all help to realign body, mind, goals, and your purpose. 
and perhaps people don't just recover to their old selves, but gain insights and growth to become even better versions of themselves. Thanks for listening. I look forward to speaking to you next time. You've been listening to the SIFT podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. Leaving a review really helps us out. The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended or implied to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. Always seek the advice of your qualified healthcare provider before starting any new treatment or discontinuing an existing treatment.